Welcome to today's episode of Property Millionaire Coach. I'm your host, Adam Panisi. I'm currently building a $200 million property portfolio through my development company, AdPen. I started in property over a decade ago at the age of 22, where I developed a $3 million project and I did this while I was earning $60,000 a year as a graduate engineer. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never miss another episode. If you want free training on how to accumulate multiple properties and how to do property development, go to my website, www.libertyblue.com.au. I also have advanced training courses you can enroll through the website. In this episode, I'm going to talk about negative gearing and why it's not as bad as you think. However, you need to make sure that you've got a couple of key things in place if you are going to negatively gear your properties. My name is Adam Panisi. I've got a couple of hundred million dollars of my own property development deals. And I'm going to talk about negative gearing and what it actually means to have negatively geared properties and then how that can affect you buying more properties and also your current cash position. So negatively geared just simply means that the property costs you money every single week. So if you're looking at building a large property portfolio and you don't have like a massive income, you're going to need to rule out negatively geared properties just straight off the bat. Unless you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars of income, rule out negatively geared properties because they're going to hinder your growth. So when you first start, especially, you need to be buying positively geared properties. And if you've got you know, an average income, $100,000 or you know, under $100,000, do not buy negatively geared properties. There's a way to actually structure positively geared properties so that even if you're on a very modest income, you can still continually keep buying properties. Now, there are some other creative strategies that you can still use even with negatively geared properties to be able to continually buy properties. Um, But again, you still need to be able to service the debt, the actual debt. But when it comes to serviceability, the bank takes the rate that they're offering you, even if it's an interest only loan, which a lot of loan facilities are only interest only, then they take that interest and they assume that you're you've got to be paying principal and interest on the loan, and then they add about another 3% on top of that loan rate. So at the moment, we're at 6% interest rates, give or take. So the bank's gonna be assessing you at 9% interest rate, as in you repaying back the loan plus 9% interest, and they're gonna be assuming you're paying the principal and interest over whatever the loan term is, 25 or 30 years. So that's gonna affect your serviceability substantially. And one thing that I heard just today as well is the serviceability, or sorry, the expense ratio has changed as well. So banks like to change their policies with how much expense that they will assume a borrower has. So just even in the last three or four months with one of the loan facilities that I have, the bank assessed my expenses at a reduced level now they're taking it at quite a a heightened level beyond what it was assessed before. And that was only in the last few months and all off the back of policy change. So that that happens. Banks at the moment are being conservative. They're tightening their purse strings. They're not lending as freely as what they were even only a few months ago. 
And we'll probably see that get a little bit worse over the next six months. And it happens every cycle. When credit is easily available, then markets boom, stock markets, property markets, and spending normally creeps up and inflation normally goes a little bit higher, not to the, the extent that we see now. But that's normally what happens because there's more availability of money and people upgrade their cars, they upgrade their furniture, they buy the toys, they buy investment properties, new properties that are being upgraded as well. So there's a lot more money being circulated. And then the banks always realize, or you know, the politicians realize that we've We've overstepped the mark a little bit. RBA steps in, puts interest rates up only slightly normally, not like we've seen over the last 6, 12 months, whatever it's been. And then there's a credit crunch. So the bank is the one that actually provides most of the credit and, and stimulates the economy, irrespective of the RBA putting rates up or down, although that, that does obviously have an impact as well. So when we go through this boom and bust cycle, in the boom cycles, credit credit is easily available. Banks are willing to lend it out willy-nilly. And you just gotta look at the GFC, what happened after there. You were, you were able to get 100% loan to value uh, ratio loans. And then after GFC, no bank, no lender was doing 100% loan to value ratio loans. And even pre-GFC, they were doing 100% of the value of the property in loan, plus they're also giving you the stamp duty on top of that as well. So it was like 105%. So you could literally buy property with no money down pre-GFC. I don't think we're gonna ever see those levels again, or maybe we will. But at the moment, you know, you, you still can get 95% loan to value ratio loans from some lenders. I'm sure that the number of lenders doing that 95% has dropped off a cliff, but there's still lenders going beyond that typical 80%, which is fairly common for residential style loans without lenders mortgage insurance. So when you're talking about buying negatively geared properties, it's gonna cost you money to own that property. So that's one factor. And if you do have more money or you know more equity that you do have available and a really good opportunity comes up in a more prestige suburb that has some awesome capital growth, and I'm not always saying that prestige suburbs always have capital growth, but just from experience, I own some higher end properties and the capital growth on those properties versus you know a cheaper one or owning multiple cheaper ones has been far better in that regard. So they, I was constructing them, so building them with the intent of keeping them, renting them out positively geared. With interest rates going up, they've gone back to being slightly neutral. Uh, so. The intention was to have them positively geared. If you were to purchase them in the current market, you know, they'd technically be negatively geared if you were to gear it to 80% loan to value ratio. So from the onset, it doesn't look like a good investment if you were to buy it at market. And the market's had a big run, but it's gonna have a more, you know, a bigger run. But if you were to compare, say, the properties that I've got luxury, you know, a couple of luxury properties, the value of those, one and a half million, and most of that growth has only been over COVID, so it's been four or $500,000 in capital growth. So they were supposed to be you know, around about $1 million, $1.1 million properties. And I was expecting them to be positively geared at that time. The only reason I could generate these properties to be positively geared was that they were, I was actually building them. So I was building them expecting that there'd be you know, a bit of upside from the build uh, but then obviously COVID came along and that upside went from 
you know, the hundred, two hundred thousand dollars I was expecting to sort of, you know, five hundred thousand dollars on on that. So, you know, those those have been really good investments, but if you were to buy them now, they'd be negatively geared. And from a traditional sense, you wouldn't be buying them as investment properties. And to be honest, I've tailored them so that they could be sold to owner occupiers or investors. I haven't made, you know, it's not necessarily an investor market. So those properties aside, I heard about a story just recently about a a person comparing their property purchase to a friend of theirs. Uh, both him and a friend bought a property similar time. He bought a cheaper property, something like $500,000. His friend bought an expensive one, $1.1 million. His was positively geared. His friend's $1.1 million house was not positively geared. And what happened over the five years, the last five years, is he got $150,000 of capital growth in his property, which is really good, you know, 30% capital growth. That's, that's good and it's positively geared. Uh, his friend, however, got nearly you know double capital growth. So his friend's property went from 1.1 to something like 1.9 million. So his friend's made $800,000 in capital growth. He's made 150 plus maybe five grand a year positively geared. So who's better off in that situation? Obviously the friend, he's got $800,000 in, in equity that if he's got enough serviceability, he can tap into. Sure, it might be negatively geared, but if you've got serviceability, you can tap into you know that $800,000 or worst case, he goes and sells it, realizes the cash, pays some tax on the cash. Hopefully he's put it in a, in a half decent structure, pay some tax on the cash and then use that cash to go and buy further properties. So it highlights that in one instance, you've got somebody who's got $150,000 of built-in equity and another situation where he's got $800,000. Now, obviously the deposit that they had to put down was different, but if you work out that as a as a ratio on cash on cash return, in the first instance, he might've had to put down say $100,000, let's just assume 20% deposit, and I won't worry about stamp duty and all that stuff. So let's just assume he's had to put down $100,000 deposit to buy a half a million dollar house, versus his mate, he's had to put down say $220,000 deposit, so he's had to put down four times the amount of money, but then obviously the 200 has turned into now 800 on top. So he's turned the 200 into a million and the initial guys turn $100,000, sorry, double the amount, $100,000 into 250,000. So on one hand, you got 250,000. On the other hand, you got a million dollars. If you minus the 100,000, you, you really need to compare, you know, $900,000 uh, in total capital versus 250,000. So they're worlds apart. And if you have a look at traditional capital growth, I know a lot of buyers agents and a lot of people talk about regional towns, you know, growing substantially in value. And you know, that might be true for a short period of time. Regionals, in my experience, have performed the same as capital cities. They still go through boom and bust cycles. The difference is that the bust cycle comes really quick in a regional area because the bus cycle is as a result of oversupply, it's as a result of people's affordability and traditionally regional areas don't have as higher income levels as capital cities. So I still, I believe that there's really good buying opportunities surrounding our capital cities. Sydney and Melbourne, pretty much no good at all to buy any positively geared properties. You know, the rental returns there, are really no good unless you've got a really creative strategy like doing boarding houses or renting out the rooms individually to students and you know 
those things are great and they can, can create positively geared properties. So the cash flow might be good, but the issue with those properties is around the valuation and the financing can be different. Not always, but generally speaking, you got a boarding house, the bank's gonna look at that as a commercial loan, they're not gonna look at it as a residential. So as soon as you start talking about commercial loans, that 80, 90% loan to value ratio, that goes out the door, and now you're suddenly at 70% loan to value ratio, and commercials are generally a higher rate. And the valuation is gonna be a lot lower as well. So they normally will make an adjustment because there's not gonna be very many comparable sales for those types of properties. So, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, you're not really gonna get positively geared properties. In, you know, around Australia, the positively geared properties that I'm seeing other people buy and that I'm just seeing generally from time to time. There's still some areas around Brisbane that have got positively geared properties uh, and some areas, Perth, Adelaide. So, yeah, they're not the, you know, Sydney and Melbournes, they're not the three quarters of the wealth, the property wealth of Australians. However, those areas have experienced really good capital growth over the last couple of years. And there's still some pockets that are undervalued in every one of those cities just because you've got capital growth over the the entire city doesn't mean that there's not good buying opportunities where you're gonna see pockets experience a ripple effect uh, from the suburbs that have grown. So I'll, I'll talk about positively geared properties a little bit further and why it's important to get them. But on the flip side, you don't want to be sacrificing your capital growth for positively, you know, just buying a property that is positively geared. I'd rather have a property that at least covers its own expenses. So it may not put any money back in my pocket, but you know, at least covers the expenses. So there's no out of pocket expenses and have it in a better area. So when there's capital cities, you've really got to look at a couple of key things with capital growth. Uh, you need to find areas that one, do have positively geared properties, but then the second one around capital growth, the capital growth, is, in my opinion, is determined by people's capacity to pay and also the supply of product coming to market. And that people's capacity to pay around capital cities, generally wages are higher, so people have a higher capacity to pay. That's what I was saying about regionals, generally wages are lower in regional areas, so the capacity to pay is less, that's generally speaking. And then the other consideration is the supply. If you're in an area where there's a mass, a flood of properties coming to the market, and they're all really cheap properties, and there's going to, they're gonna oversupply the market, then you're gonna be competing with those. And a lot of these areas is like the urban sprawl on the outskirts. So although we've seen capital growth in these in the last couple of years with COVID, this is not typical. You generally don't see a huge amount of capital growth in the urban sprawl areas. They're always gonna underperform. And that's only as a result of oversupplies because developers will go and build thousands of properties and now your one property you own is now not unique and probably it never was, but it's not unique and there's thousands of other properties being developed around it and people, if they need to sell, if they need to sell up, they're gonna be selling and you're gonna be competing with that market. Now, as that market moves along through segments and that, that now urban sprawl gets built out and there's no more available land, now we're into a restricted market supply. Uh, but you've also got to consider other suburbs surrounding. So just because your suburb is being built out, have a look you know, in a five kilometer radius or 10 kilometer radius 
and have a look what else is going to be developed. And not just developments that are happening now, but what's it gonna look like in 10, 15, 20 years time, if that's how long you're planning to hold the property. Is there going to be another 5,000 properties coming to market? Will those 5,000 properties be taken up by new purchases? So there is that consideration as well. And also the purchases coming into the market, are they first home buyers? Because if they are first home buyers and interest rates go up like they have, well then what's that going to mean for their borrowing power or you know their ability to meet repayments or their affordability? So you don't wanna be in an area long term that doesn't have some sort of affluence because it's that affluence, that income, that's going to drive property prices up long term uh, obviously as well as the supply, but if you've got two people and they're both cashed up and they're both competing for the one property, they're gonna push the price up because they can afford it. If they really want the property, they can afford it, they can push the price up. What's an extra $50,000 if people have the cash and they really want that property? It's nothing. And then at the high end of town, you know, the luxury market, there's still properties being transacted at five million, six million. You know, you don't go to a bank and get an 80% loan to value ratio on a six million dollar property, for example. So those people are paying with cash. And if you've got six million dollars cash, I can assure you a guy with six million dollars cash has got seven, eight, nine, ten million dollars cash, he's normally not pushing it to the limit. And if you really want that property and somebody else really wants it, and there's no supplies, so there's no other properties like it, and you're both fighting over it you know, you're gonna be pushing the price up. So that's how capital growth happens. And then once that price gets pushed up, then all of a sudden it sets a new standard for that suburb. So we saw that through COVID because people were moving from Southern states, Sydney and Melbourne to Queensland. So Queensland experienced all these Southerners buying properties here and then pushing the price up because a property in Brisbane is cheap. The same thing is happening over in Perth people from the East Coast that are going to Perth and I've seen some properties in Perth, you know, 300,000, 400,000 and they're pretty close to the city and they look pretty good and, they, and their rental returns are huge. So, you know, over there it looks really cheap and we don't know the market over here and same with Sydney and Melbourne buying in Brisbane and Sydney and Melbourne buying in Adelaide. You know, we don't know the market, properties are cheap or at least they look cheap and their rental returns are awesome compared to what we're used to, what people from Sydney and Melbourne are used to. So what do people do? They they pay uh, a price, they compete with other people, the market ramps up and then all of a sudden there's a lot more demand and there's been no supply the last few years especially. And that, that undersupply, that lack of supply is going to continue into the future. Um, but now it's a case of affordability. So where can you buy a property that's positively geared, not only positively geared, uh, but still is able to be afforded by the masses that are moving into that area? That's where we, you're gonna see real capital growth uh, over the short, medium and long term, I believe. And obviously supply, as I mentioned, makes a big difference in that. So if you're buying positively geared properties, the good thing about that is that you can set and forget, you buy it, it pays for its own expenses, and then if you get that structure right, and I teach about putting things into separate structures, and you, there's a bit more to it than just, hey, I'll just put that into one company, and then I'll just put this into another company, and you, you know, you can go ask your accountant, and he'll happily set up a company for you, or he'll happily set up a trust, um, but it's about doing it right and driving the right consultants to where you want to lead them. Uh, and you really got to know that overall strategy. Your accountant isn't going to know it unless he owns 50 properties. And your financier, finance broker, 
or banker, they're most likely definitely not going to know it. So you need to be the one. There's only, you know, there's nobody else that's consulting to you that you can go, hey, I want to build a multi property portfolio that's positively geared. Nobody's going to go out and do that for you. You're going to do it. And that's where the skill comes in. You know, if, if it was easy and straightforward, everybody would be doing it. But I can tell you after transacting multiple properties, you learn a couple of things along the way. And it wasn't until I bought, sold, held properties, done multiple refinances that I actually realized how the system works. Nobody had told me how it works. I'd realized it on my own because I've just done that many transactions that you just learn a few things, what to do, what not to do, especially. And, you know, just by chance, I've happened to figure this thing out and so have other people around the country. And generally, those other people are ones that own multiple properties already. So to get to that owning multiple properties, you've got to actually own, well, first of all, number one, but then to see how that affects you. So you don't want to go out there, buy a negatively geared property, stick it in your own name or stick it in joint names. That's your first investment property. You go back to the bank and the bank goes, sorry, your serviceability is maxed. That's it. You can do one property and you're done. So, you know, good luck. Have fun with one property. Maybe you'll get some capital growth in five years. Maybe you'll get some more income. And maybe in five years time, you get to buy another one. And then, you know, five years later, you get to buy another one. So, you know, 30 years later, you've got six investment properties. And to be honest, you'd be doing pretty well. You'd be in the, you know, top whatever percent, probably top 1% owning six investment properties. Uh, You do it smartly, get the structures right, buy those positively geared properties in those high growth locations. You can get to those six properties probably in a quarter of the time. So, you know, when people say, cool, I'm going to put everything in separate entities. Yes, let's do that. Cool. That's only one part of the whole equation and it's also about understanding like I said because you've got to instruct your professionals you need to rely on your professionals for their advice but you're the one that's instructing them no different to a jockey riding a horse a horse can be you know the best race horse but you're the jockey riding if you don't know how to ride it then it's not going to go very fast and same with a car you know you're in a Ferrari you're not going to be able to drive it fast or you're in a race car if you don't know how to drive that car Do you even know how to turn it on? Do you know how to change gears? Do you know how to put it in sports mode? Just because the car can go fast, just because the horse can run fast and gallop fast, doesn't mean that you're gonna be able to get it to go fast. So same thing with your professionals. You know, they can run fast, they can do all these things, but you're at the helm, you're the one directing them. Consultants, I found they don't have foresight. I mean, if they had foresight, they'd have massive property portfolios and for the majority of them, they don't, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, that's just how it is. They're professionals. They are really good at one thing. Accountants are really good at doing your finances. Hopefully, they're good at giving you a, a tax-effective structure, but they don't know about financing. Finance brokers, they know how to get one loan approved at, at one time, but, you know, they don't know about what your goals are and where you're planning on getting to. You know that. You know, you can go to a financial planner. They'll ask you about your goals. They'll do a pretty financial plan, blah, blah, blah. They'll tell you to put it into shares and your shares will grow at 5% and the share market will crash by 50%. You've lost half your money. But, you know, they'll do a nice plan for you. It'll cost you four or $5,000 for a financial plan. But they're not going to make you wealthy. The only person that's going to make you wealthy is you. And again, no offense to, you know, financial planners, accountants or finance brokers, but the majority of those guys don't have massive property portfolios. 
their business is an accounting practice and they might own a couple of homes and you know the main income source is from the accounting practice and financial planners same thing finance brokers same thing so you know if those guys are in your corner professionals you're not going to be able to rely on them to tell you how to buy properties and then just keep doing it you want to have to be the one to do that and so you know with buying multiple properties one after the other putting them in separate entities you do have to have the properties to be at least neutrally geared so covering their own expenses uh, so it is important you buy those positively geared properties or neutrally geared um, but then also you need to rely on the capital growth to be able to keep buying the next property because unless you're able to save a 10 or 20% deposit every time you go and buy another property, you're going to have to rely on the capital growth from your entire portfolio. And that's really the aim of the game at the end of the day is to actually have your capital growth grow in value or your property portfolio grow in value because that is where the majority of wealth is for property investors over the long term. So I hope that's really helped with uh, assessing you know, negative and positively geared properties. And maybe next time you're looking at a negatively geared property, if you're in that situation where you, you really need to be buying those neutrally or positively geared properties, you know, just move on to another suburb or move on to another property and move on to another area. Maybe it's not where you live. Maybe it's on the other side of Australia. Move to an area where you are gonna get that positively geared properties and you're gonna get that capital growth so that you can continue to buy properties long-term into the future and build a big property portfolio because if that's your intention, then you know you do definitely want to be buying positively geared properties. And you gotta consider as well that if it was easy, if it was straightforward, everybody would have massive property portfolios. So there are tweaks that you do need to know in that. And you know, it does take time to find these really good properties, you know, these gems where you're buying them and they are highly positively geared and they are in growth location. So it does take time if it takes you six months every time to buy a property you're doing okay you know if you buy one property in six months and then six months later you've got enough capital growth from that one property to then buy the next property and then you just rinse and repeat that cycle if you bought one property every six months you're doing be doing very very well so with that i'll leave you with it any questions please let me know and have a great day